In the first of our episodes on life writing, we'll look at James Boswell's The Life of Samuel Johnson. What we have here is the 1793, which is actually the second edition of the life. So there are three volumes. But first, who was Samuel Johnson? Here's a picture of Johnson by, um, by Joshua Reynolds, um, kindly um, painted without all the scars and peculiar um, things that he suffered from. So this is, this is a nice version. He was a tall, sort of awkward man, very big and sort of shambling in his, in his um, and quite untidy. Next, you'll hear Georgia discuss how Samuel Johnson came to author his Dictionary of the English Language, a publication that remained the single most authoritative English dictionary for over 150 years. Then we'll return to Boswell's definition of the man behind the definitions, or something like that. Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince. They're still not popular books. They are artworks, yeah, absolutely. Today, we're going to look at two figures of 18th century English literature. Both wrote very significant works which were highly influential. One is Samuel Johnson and the Dictionary of the English Language, and the other is James Boswell's Life of Samuel Johnson. So we're going to look at both of them. Um, and this is um, Samuel Johnson's Dictionary. This is actually the third edition, but it's the, it's, to all intents and purposes, it's the same um, edition that was first printed in 1755. So Samuel Johnson, you know, he's a, he's a sort of a figure that people like to quote in the 18th century, and they, of course, particularly like to quote Boswell's um, descriptions of the conversations they had. But his primary uh, work through the 18th century was as a journalist, really, and a writer, um, and a professional writer, which at this point is still quite unusual. He's not a member of the elite. He's a man who was born in Litchfield in the Midlands, um, the son of rather unsuccessful booksellers. He did go to university, but only for a year because he couldn't afford it. But he was very gifted as a scholar, really. He was strange looking. He was a tall, sort of awkward man, very big and sort of shambling in his, in his um, and quite untidy. <laughs> he had odd mannerisms and I have recently seen somebody suggesting he might have had Tourette's, which is an interesting description of, from a distance. People love trying to diagnose yeah. medical conditions from 200 years later, <laughs> try and guess what the matter with them was. <laughs> we do know he had scrofula as a baby, and I, looked, and I looked it up, you know, just recently, trying to see what on earth it is. And it's a sort of bacterial infection um, that mostly affects the lymph nodes in the neck. It's sort of tubercular. He came to London, really, because he wanted to be a writer, and he became a journalist, really, and became quite well-known through poetry. Um, he wrote The Vanity of Human Wishes, and he wrote London, big poems, satirical poems. And anyway, he was, but he became a literary figure, and because of that, a group of booksellers 
commissioned him to write a dictionary. So this is not this is not a, a, a national project like the Oxford English Dictionary became, you know, sort of like so many years later. This is the forerunner of that. And it was a group of London booksellers and publishers sort of organised by Doddsley. He was a famous 18th century printer and publisher. And they wanted to produce or have a dictionary produced that would fix the language, <laughs> which is the sort of thing that publishers and booksellers like, you know, because too many people writing, spelling oddly, writing differently. How do we, how do we print and edit works when we don't know what the right thing is? So a group of them got together and they commissioned Johnson in 1746 to do the dictionary. And this is basically a one, man, one man's job. You know, like it's completely astonishing from the context of later um, dictionary productions, which involved teams of people and took, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to complete. He did it in just under 10, sort of around about nine years. He did have a group of secretaries, secretarial help, but all they did was copy what he, what he provided. It, and that, this is really the first modern dictionary of English. It has all the elements that we now expect of a dictionary. It has etymology, so it has origins of words. It's organised alphabetically, um, but it also has quotations, and it's the quotations part of the dictionary, which was his particular innovation, which was writing the word in context of something that had been published or written. And he was mostly trying to look at works in English that were written by previous, you know, not living authors, but by um, past authors. And it relied hugely on, on his personal knowledge of English literature, you know, his reading knowledge. He read everything and <laughs> decided which quotations to incorporate. So it's an, it's an amazing task. This is the third edition but it, of 1765, but it is almost exactly the same as the first edition. The first edition... They, well, how many copies did they do? 2,000 copies. Um, very expensive, £4.10 shillings to buy. You know, two, volume, two folio volumes like this. They quickly started the next year, no, later that year, to pr produce a second edition in weekly parts, which they thought might be more acceptable to people and you could buy it sort of like instalments so you wouldn't notice the cost. Um, and then, of course, there was the, this is the third folio edition, which was pretty expensive. The abridged edition, without the quotations they put out the following year in 56. So 55 was the full, full dictionary. 56 was the abridged edition. And that sold massively because people could afford it, smaller, easier to carry around. So it's often the abridged edition that people see. But this is the full, full thing. <laughs> it's presented to the library. So I don't exactly know what date because, of course, it doesn't actually say. We think this is li a library binding. It's not... It's not 18th century binding, and it's not what an 18th century binding would look like. No one ever used black leather. Um, it would look like a black leather. Um, presented to the Auckland Public Library by Vice Admiral Sir Maxwell Richmond. The dictionary was inherited by Admiral Richmond from Miss Margaret Joseph Sheehan, daughter of William Sheehan, solicitor. So we don't know very much more about it than that, or I haven't really investigated any more than that. 
So I'll just open it up and we can have a quick look. And I'm going to read out some of Johnson's preface because that sort of says it better than anything I can say really about what he's intending to do. So this is the dictionary of the English language in which the words are deduced from their originals and illustrated in their different significations by examples from the best writers to which are prefixed the history of the language and English grammar by Samuel Johnson AM in two volumes. And these down the bottom are all the booksellers who are involved in commissioning the work. So unlike a lot of the other ones we've looked at, there's no big dedicatory page to a royal personage of great, no one, no one put their money in this apart from the booksellers. They paid Johnson, paid him 1,500 guineas or something for the whole thing. But, but it did take him 10 years to do. <laughs> and he had to pay his secretaries and, yeah. you know, his, his secretarial help out of it. So this is the preface. So, as I say, no list of subscribers, no dedicatory patrons or anything. It is the fate of those who toil at the lower employments of life to be rather driven by the fear of evil than attracted by the prospect of good, to be exposed to censure without hope or praise, to be disgraced by miscarriage or punished for neglect where success would have been without applause and diligence without reward. <laughs> and so it goes on. Among these unhappy mortals is the writer of dictionaries <laughs> who mankind have considered not as the pupil but the slave of science, the pioneer of literature, doomed only to remove rubbish and clear obstructions from the paths of learning and genius, <laughs> who press forward to conquest and glory without bestowing a smile on the humble drudge that facilitates their, pro their progress. Every other author may aspire to praise. The lexicographer can only hope to escape reproach. And even this negative recompense has yet been granted to very few. <laughs> I have, notwithstanding this discouragement, att <laughs> attempted a dictionary of the English language, which, while it was employed in the cultivation of every species of literature, has itself been hitherto neglected, suffered to spread under, under the direction of chance, into wild exuberance, resigned to the tyranny of time and fashion and exposed to the corruptions of ignorance and caprices of innovation. When I took the first survey of my undertaking, I found our speech copious without order and energetic without rules. Wherever I turned my view, there was perplexity to be disentangled and confusion to be regulated. Choice was to be made out of boundless variety without any established principle of selection. Adulterations were to be detected without a settled test of purity and modes of expression to be rejected or received without the suffrages of any writers of classical reputation or acknowledged authority. And so, you know, this is him setting the scene for the whole thing. So he goes on at some length. Um, he talks about orthography, so sort of settling the spelling. Yes, to collect the words of our language was a task of greater difficulty. The deficiency of dictionaries was immediately apparent. So these were all the attempts at dictionaries in the past. And when they were exhausted, what was yet wanting must be sought by fortuitous and unguided exertions into books. So he's looking, you know, how does he collect the words? How does he choose which words? And gleaned as industry should find or chance should offer it in the boundless chaos of, living, of a living speech. My search, however, has been either skillful or lucky, for I have much augmented the vocabulary. So he's, he's added all these different words to, to, the, um, to the dictionary. Um, and then he talks about the impossibility of fixing the language, which is what he was sort of tasked with, the idea that the dictionary would somehow solve all these you know, random changes and things that people were doing in, in living speech. 
of the event of this work, for which, having laboured it with so much application, I cannot but have some degree of parental fondness, it is natural to form conjectures. Those who have been persuaded to think well of my design require that it should fix our language. So these, this is the commission of the booksellers. Um, and put a stop to those alterations which time and chance have hitherto been suffered to make in it without opposition. With this consequence, I confess that I flattered myself for a while, um, but now begin to fear that I have indulged expectation with neither, which neither reason nor experience can justify. And so he comes to the conclusion, basically, that you can't fix the language. It's going to change, and that's part of its, you know, its success, really. And I think that you know, generally that's exactly how people feel about it now. What does he say in this one? Oh, this is what he says about this work. The English dictionary was written with little assistance of the learned and without any patronage of the great. And that's what I was saying before about um, being paid or, or having. Um, not, in, not in the soft obscurities of retirement or under the shelter of academic bowers, but amid inconvenience and distraction, in sickness and in sorrow. And it may repress the triumph of malignant criticism to observe that if our language is not here fully displayed, I have only attempted, I have only failed in an attempt which no human powers have hitherto completed. And that's, you know, that's, that's the sort of scale of this, of this exercise. On the title page, he's called Samuel Johnson AM. And most people refer to him now as Dr. Johnson. But those were honorary degrees that were conferred on him basically on the basis of the dictionary. He, he only managed to stay at Oxford for a year because they couldn't afford it. Um, so, but he was very proud and very pleased to be awarded academic um, honours when he had not actually managed to finish his degree, which he always regretted. That's why he's so pleased with the AM on the dictionary, which is his master's MA. And then subsequently he gets an honorary, at the end of this publication, he gets a, an honorary doctorate from Oxford. I mean, most people now tend to trawl through the dictionary to laugh at the various <laughs> definitions because in amongst all the fantastically normal, you know, beautifully described um, definitions of words, there are some very peculiar and eccentric ones and some of them are almost like in-jokes, which, which he, you're sure that he just, well, I'm just going to write this down, who cares? You know, like, this, is, like, this is a test to see if you've read the whole dictionary. <laughs> So including in them, you know, are the famous ones, some of the famous ones. I mean, excise is a, is a famous one because these are the customs officers that nobody liked um, who, who were trying to get taxes, particularly from brandy or, you know, liquor that was being smuggled in from France. Excise, a hateful tax levied upon commodities and adjudged not by the common judges of property, but wretches hired by those to whom excise is paid. You know, so he, he, he's got this, oh, these lovely sort of funny um, descriptions. And then, of course, in the other, I think I have put in, well, the le lexicographer is the famous one, the harmless drudge, which he does actually mention, mention, which is this page. Yeah, lexicographer, a writer of dictionaries, a harmless drudge that busies himself in tracing the original and detailing the signification of words, you know, so that... Those are sort of like little jokes. Monsieur is quite a good one because it's rude about the French. Um, Monsieur, a term of reproach for a Frenchman. <laughs> 
So, I mean, this is what people love doing, but of course, it's, I mean, the, the, and Oats, of course, is the famous one, which everybody, well, most a lot of people have heard out of, which is, you know, which it could actually have been almost um, just straight description. A grain, Oats, a grain, which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. You know, that's <laughs> that's so, you know, there's lots of fun to be had reading through, but of course, in amongst it... Um, this dictionary ended up by being the standard English dictionary until the Oxford English Dictionary was produced in the early 20th century. So for 150 years, this was the, 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 um, the dictionary of English, which is an amazing achievement by one person mm. and on less, under doing it all in less than 10 years, sort of nine years. 46 he was commissioned, 55 it was published. Amazing. Um, but a lot of the stories about Johnson we hear about through James Boswell, who was Johnson's big fan. I mean, that's really the guts of it. Um, Boswell is an, a next generation. He's, you know, he's, he's a son to, Bo to Johnson's father, really. Um, Johnson, I mean, Boswell was a Scotsman. Um, father was a lawyer, but also a landowner in the lowlands of, of Scotland and became a laird. Um, his father was quite a demanding man um, and Johnson never lived up, I mean Boswell never lived up to his father's expectations. Johnson was far kinder to him and that's to some extent um, part of the attraction of the two people. Boswell met Johnson in 1763 so it's after the dictionary was, was um, first produced Boswell was in his 20s, Johnson was in his 50s and an established literary figure. Boswell was a sort of, as I say, sort of innocent fan. Um, and he hasn't really had a great press from um, posterity because lots of people have talked about him as if he was a sort of sycophant, you know, following the great men round and writing down all their bon mots, which he did do. He recorded conversations, which upset quite a lot of people because they didn't trust him, understandably. <laughs> He actually was, I, I certainly have come to respect and think far high, more highly of him having done this research that I've just been doing. Because one of the things that, one of the people we are um, influenced by was a 19th century historian called Macaulay who was very, very rude about Boswell and lots of people have followed suit. Um, Macaulay had his own reasons. Boswell is the first of biographers. So his biography of Johnson is hugely significant in life writing. It's really the first biography to try and show every aspect of a person, not just their public persona, their, you know, their, all their achievements, not, not, not sort of praising them and, and showing, showing them in the best possible light, which previous biographies on the whole had tended to do. This was to show the completeness of a character, everything about them. And that is where he, and also to record verbatim things he said, you know, and he wasn't to be shown in all, you know, only at, in his best side, he was to be shown in his complete sort of human, humanity. Macaulay is praising Boswell for that. He's the first of biographers, he has no second. But even so, um, Boswell, according to Macaulay, was one of the smallest men who ever lived. A man of the meanest and feeblest intellect, servile and impertinent, shallow and pedantic, a bigot and a sot, 
bloated with family pride and eternally blustering about the dignity of a born gentleman, yet stooping to be a tale-bearer, an eavesdropper, a common butt in the taverns of London. And he was sort of tactless, basically. Yeah. He said stuff and, and repeated stuff that other people wanted to keep hidden, but he didn't really think it was worth hiding, and why should you? He, he had established writing a journal when he was quite young and, and Johnson encouraged him to do so. And he, he, his journal writing became almost an obsession. He would write down every day. He would stay up all night to write the journal. Um, he would write down what people said. He would write down what he did. He was completely... Um, he wasn't trying to put himself in the best light in some ways. It was a sort of confessional. He'd, he'd tell stories against himself constantly. He would repeat all the terrible things he'd done and promise to do better. And, you know, his journal was full of this sort of thing. The life depends on the journals um, because this is written after Johnson's death. So Johnson died in uh, 1784 and Boswell finally finishes the biography in 1791. He immediately started writing it, but it was a huge task because one of the things that Boswell did that people had not done really in the past was he checked facts. He was a lawyer. He was a bad lawyer. He didn't want to be a lawyer. His father made him a lawyer. <laughs> but he, 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 he checked evidence. So he went and checked with people whether he was right. He saved Johnson's letters. He, you know, checked, his, his, checked all his diaries. So what we have here is the 1793, which is actually the second edition of the life. So there are three volumes. It's completely unillustrated, of course apart from the painting by Joshua Reynolds, which is the frontispiece in the book, and actually was uh, owned by, by Boswell. Boswell had that painting for quite some time until his family got rid of it at some point. Um, it's now in the National Portrait Gallery. This is the second edition, and it's interesting because in the second edition he, he adds in more stuff, like now that he's, it's out there in the world, other people have given him more letters, they've given him more information. So he's... It's a rather strange thing because he's, at, he's, he's got these additions in it. Um, all, all the additions are at the, the table of contents are at the front. The additions and corrections are at the front. Additions to Dr. Johnson's life are all collected in the front. A, a bibliography of all his prose works, the corrections of the previous edition. You know, it's at the table of contents, which is like almost like an index, which is right at the beginning of the whole thing. But one of the things that I would quite like to tell you about is the advertisement. So in the, he, he's added two prefaces. So the first one is the first edition. I at last deliver to the world a work which I've long promised and which I'm afraid too high expectations have been raised. So that's, that's the first part. With the second part, and this is one of the reasons why people, people, lots of people didn't really take to him, well, a number of people didn't really take to him, is he can't resist saying... How happy it is that how happy he is that everybody loves his his biography, the second advertisement. So <clears throat> there are um, some men, I believe, who have or think they have a very small share of vanity. Such may speak of their literary fame in a decorous style of diffidence. But I confess that I am so formed by nature and by habit to the, that to restrain the effusion of delight on having obtained such fame to me would be truly painful. <laughs> <laughs> Why then should I suppress it? <laughs> Why, out of the abundance of the heart, should I not speak? Let me then mention with a warm but no insolent exultation that I have been regaled with spontaneous praise of my work. 
by many and various persons eminent for their rank, learning, talents and accomplishments, much of which praise, and so and so on, you know. So, and, and, and other people thought this was just appalling self-promotion. You know, he, and this is one of the reasons why he, he has this, he has this um, reputation, or he had this reputation in the 19th century. Yeah, well, I mean, he's doing fine now. And in fact, that's, this is the irony that actually people now read Boswell and don't read Johnson. And that is the irony because his actual journals were discovered. Well, he kept his journals and they sort of remained in the family. And then in the 1920s, they were sort of discovered by an American Boswell collector in Ireland in, in, the, in the family. And a number of trunks kept sort of appearing from strange quarters of the family, um, wider family. And all his journals survived, not through any attempt at preservation, but through neglect, really. I mean, they just, nobody bothered to go up in the attic and fetch them out. They'd moved them on, I suppose, from different houses, but they hadn't actually checked on them. And all his natural speech and all his effusions of that nature are all there in the journals and they became you know bestsellers when they were when they were first printed and they're still popular among people today there are still editions of Boswell's journals especially the London one which is the one he wrote when he first came to London in his 20s and was completely bowled over by how fantastic London was and sampled all its pleasures and sins and everything and wrote it all down (laughs) without, you know, any compunction or embarrassment. And that's why Johnson Johnson survives as an interesting person because Boswell has recorded his conversations in this book. So there's three volumes of this, which here, and I'll just finish up with a little rather kinder description of Boswell, which is from a a, a later source, which is, um, so Boswell was and remains a divisive personality, even for modern readers who find the fluent, precise, demotic prose of the journals compelling. So these are all now printed. An unstable amalgam of vibrant self-advertising vanity and self-tortured insecurity. An able but reluctant Edinburgh lawyer who marred his chances for judicial promotion with overzealous and occasionally frenetic defences of poor criminal clients. He never made any money at it because he felt sorry for the victims with whom he felt a particular sympathy. A loving but erratic husband, a lenient, beloved but overburdened father, uh, a kind and improvement-oriented lowland laird who longed for life in London, a sentimental Jacobite who developed an extraordinary veneration for George III. You know, so this is, this, this is what's sort of so interesting about him as a person. So he start his whole literary career which he was always keen, really. He really wanted a literary career, but his father wouldn't let him. And Johnson was extremely supportive of of Boswell all all through their association. And as I say, really in many ways treated him as as a son, um, which is one of the reasons why Boswell loved him. So there we go. For more on Johnson and Boswell, see our episode A Trip to Scotland, including the story behind a chapter of the life. Uncover a truly unique collection. Visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website.
This podcast was brought to you by Napa Takakuriro, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon. Patron is also quite rude, which is what you sort of imagine of somebody who was a very independent writer. Um, patron. Where can I find that one? Uh, patron, one who countenance, supports or protects, commonly a wretch who supports with insolence and is paid with flattery. And it's not anything Johnson is ever going to do. <laughs> Flatter anybody. Pension is also quite good um, <laughs> on the same thing. Pension, an allowance made to anyone without an equivalent. In England, it's generally understood to mean pay given to a state hireling for, tr- for treason to his country. <laughs>